0: Uh, We are going to pick up in the Gospel of John, where we've been for the last couple months, Uh, picking up in John chapter 3, verse 9, we're going to go through verse 21 as we conclude this historic dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus, the, the Christ, the Son of God, and the Pharisee, the teacher, Nicodemus. We studied the first half of this conversation last week and we saw the disturbing reality that that there is the existence of this incomplete belief, is what we titled it last week, where you may have someone who believes in Jesus, but does not display true saving faith. Uh, If you recall last week, we looked at the end of chapter two and it talks about many were believing in Jesus when they saw his signs. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them. And then John, our author, inserted this conversation that we have with Nicodemus as a, an individual representation of that many. We contrasted Nicodemus' belief in Jesus as a great teacher, right? He comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a great teacher because we have seen your signs. And we contrasted that with the belief of the disciples who believed in Jesus, not as a great teacher, but as the son of God, not because they saw his signs, but because by his signs, they saw his glory. We learned that Nicodemus' main concern was getting into the kingdom of God. And so when you think about the life of Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee, right? And he had risen up the ranks. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body. He has given up a lot of liberties throughout his life so that he can ensure that he's going to make it into this kingdom. And you saw how frustrated he was whenever Jesus told him that his external religious acts were not sufficient, but that he would have to be born again, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. This new birth known as regeneration within historical Christianity is a requirement for one to display true complete saving faith. And we learned last week by the words of Jesus Christ himself that this process of regeneration by the Holy Spirit is outside of man's control. You remember, that's why Nicodemus was so frustrated, because he's done all of these things his whole life to make sure he can get in, and Jesus tells him, no, you've got to be born again, and you can't even do that. Jesus used the 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 illustration of a physical birth to communicate this spiritual truth of a spiritual birth. By the way, this week I hear is a big week for Sean and Katie Booth, so if you'll pray for them this week, uh, new birth, new life will happen in the physical realm, and so pray for spiritual as well this week and pray for safety. But back to this. Uh, We learned that the Spirit's movement upon men and women's hearts was like that of the wind. He uses another illustration there. And like the wind, the Spirit, He he moves where He wishes, when He wishes. It's outside of man's control. That truth pointed us back to the truth that we had already seen in chapter 1 when our author John stated that all believers are born into the family of God, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God and God alone. And that's a tough truth to accept. That's difficult. Although this should be good news because Scripture tells us in Ephesians 2 that we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin. When we come into this world, we are spiritually dead people, and dead people don't believe in anything. But we don't like to hear that We don't like the fact that this is out of our control. We we like to retain that part. Scripture also tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that we naturally don't accept spiritual things because they are foolish to us. So it takes a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to give us new spiritual life so that these spiritual things can be perceived by us. Scripture tells us in Romans 3 that not a single human being is righteous and that none of us understand the gospel in our own ability and that not a single one of us seeks for God. And yet we kind of rebel, we fight against this truth that God has to do something for us. The good news that we learned about last week is that instead of us having to pursue God, God pursues us. His Holy Spirit comes after our hearts, and He moves upon our hearts so that we can respond in belief. And yet, that still makes some of us feel a little uncomfortable. And so this week, I was really thinking, I say this week... um, from Friday. Friday, I was really thinking as I was studying this. Uh, why does that make us uncomfortable? And th- this is where this is what I think. I think we're afraid of this because we feel like it may contradict what we believe about God's love. We feel like this may somehow. Conflict with the fact that God loves the world. I know so many believers who I believe are true believers see the truths we discussed last week, see the truths we're going to discuss this week, and feel like they have to pick between the two. Like Scripture might contradict itself. On one hand, John 3, 1-8 says that no one can believe unless God... Acts first by granting new spiritual life so that people can believe. And then on the other hand, John 3.16 says that God loves the world and that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. So it seems like John 3.1-8 would frustrate that invitation to whoever would believe. My aim this morning is to give us all a renewed confidence in the love that God has for us. I want you to see that this morning. I want to exalt God's love that He expressed through His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we could all take these glorious truths that are communicated in verses 3, 1-8, and 9-21 through 21, as complementary. They are side-by-side side together. If nothing else occurs this morning, my prayer is that our view of God's love for the world is enlarged so that we see him in all of his glory more clearly. To put it in simpler terms, because when you leave here today, I want you to remember something God loves you. I want you to leave understanding that God loves you. Some of you may already believe that this morning. My prayer is that you continue to rejoice in this love. And that you bask in the depth of God's love for you. Because it is deep. We will spend the rest of eternity searching the scriptures to understand exactly how deep that is, it's immeasurable. but I also know that others of you may struggle to believe that this morning. You have your reasons. It could be that you don't feel worthy of His love. My prayer is that you would base your understanding of God's love not from what society says is worthy of love and not worthy of love, but from what Scripture says, the fact that that God does in fact love you and he's expressed that love for you already. It could be that you just don't feel loved. When you look at your life right now, it's very difficult for you to feel that God loves you. My prayer is that God awakens you to see, understand, and believe with every fiber of your being that he does. And what greater text... To display this truth in the one we're studying this morning. Let's continue our conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, picking up in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so, what we see here at the beginning in Nicodemus's question is that as a symptom of his spiritual deadness, he can't understand what Jesus is saying. He does not understand this teaching that he must be born again and how that is a requirement. He's likely frustrated at that notion that there's nothing he can do to enter into the kingdom. You remember, Nicodemus is an old man by now. So when Jesus told him, you've got to be born again, he's got to go back all the way to the beginning of his life. Start fresh. That all of this stuff that he's done means nothing. Jesus then rebukes him for his lack of understanding. Jesus says, you are the prominent teacher of God's chosen people, Israel. And yet you don't understand these things. And in his rebuke of Nicodemus, you might see there that it's also a rebuke of the whole nation. If the prominent teacher, the one who's teaching everyone doesn't understand it, how can the nation, the common Jew, who's less familiar with the, the, the writings, the sacred writings of the, the law? And then Jesus draws Nicodemus in. He uses this statement in the Greek. It's amen, amen, which we've, you may sound familiar. It's amen, amen, amen. Verily, verily, or as we have in the ESV, truly, truly. He's drawing him in. Listen to me because I'm about to tell you something that is true and that you need to hear. Truly, truly, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus draws a dividing line here with Nicodemus so that there would be no confusion. He says that we, plural, Speak of what we know to be true, and we give testimony to that which we've seen. Now, it's possible when he's saying we that he could be referring to him and the disciples because the disciples are around for this conversation. Or he could be referring to men like Jesus and John the Baptist who were preaching repentance and salvation. Or he could just be using a general term that's saying we as in all of those who believe and proclaim this truth. I'm not sure. But one thing for sure is that Jesus is included in that we. And so Jesus is saying, I'm giving you testimony. I'm bearing witness to what I know. And yet you do not receive it. And that you is also plural. You don't see it in the English language. That's a difficult thing to see. But that's plural. And what he's saying is, there's a dividing line between those of us who believe And you Pharisees, the group that Nicodemus associates himself with. He wants to make sure that Nicodemus is not confused and believe that he is a member of this group of people who are believers. And then Jesus' next words display the extent to which Nicodemus and really all men who are spiritually dead lack understanding he says, if you don't believe in earthly things, it is impossible for you to believe when I tell you heavenly things. Now, when he says earthly things, he's referring back to this this discussion about the new birth, regeneration. And we've already discussed that's not an earthly thing. That is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. But when he says earthly things, he's pointing to the fact that he's used earthly illustrations to communicate those truths. He used the birth And we all know birth. We can understand birth. And so he points his his attention to this fact that all of us must be reborn. And then he also talked about the wind. And we can identify with what the wind is. That is an earthly thing. And Jesus says, if you can't understand when I'm giving you earthly illustrations, how are you going to understand when I start talking about heavenly things? These are more difficult truths. Greater and he says, "No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven himself, the Son of man." Jesus is going even further to point out the extent of Nicodemus's unbelief. Who better to teach Nicodemus, Nicodemus, the spiritual truths of salvation than the Son of God who has come down from heaven and took taken on flesh? And yet Nicodemus standing right before him, God himself in the flesh teaching him, does not understand. You have the eternal Word, as we learned in chapter 1. The Word who was in the beginning, who was with God, and who was God. Communicating the, the depths of heavenly truth regarding salvation to Nicodemus in terms that he should be able to understand. But he doesn't. And the truth is that every single one of us at some point in our lives was just like Nicodemus. We were dead spiritually. We were unable to comprehend spiritual things. Even if Jesus the Son of God Himself were to stand before you and to teach those. For those of us who have been granted the Spirit necessary to believe, let us not grow arrogant and think that we had anything to do with that. That's outside of our control. Left to ourselves, we would never believe. No one seeks after God. No one understands. This is a humble gospel. It humiliates us. Let us not forget the state from which we were saved. We were saved by grace expressed through the faith that we've been given to believe. And then Jesus moves this discussion. So he's been talking about regeneration. The work of the Holy Spirit. And so that if you're If you're going to believe, you have to have this. The Holy Spirit has to give you new life. And he moves from regeneration to justification. What are we believing? Who are we believing in? And what does that mean for us? That's justification. That we would be found right. That we would be found innocent. And so, picking up in verses 14 through 18. Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, But in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I love the picture that Jesus paints here with this reference to Moses in the wilderness. Again, Jesus is taking the gospel. And he's relating it to something that Nicodemus could understand. Nicodemus would know this. This is in the law. In fact, this is in the first five books, the Torah. He would have known this reference because he's referencing the history of Israel. Before it was birth and wind, now it is a reference to his heritage. In the book of Numbers, chapter 21, we find the recording of the events that Jesus is referring to here. At this point in the history of Israel, God has used Moses to deliver his chosen people from Egyptian captivity. And so God has delivered them from slavery. He's parted the Red Sea. He's provided food for them from heaven, manna. He's provided them with quail. He's brought forth water from a rock. And the people of God are found complaining. Much like we might be tempted to do today. (laughs) Right? So pick up with me in Numbers 21, starting in verse 4. And we're going to go to verse 9. And I want you to see what happens as a result of their complaint. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, side note there. You would think that they would be a little bit more grateful, right? This food is coming from heaven. Manna. We we still don't know what it is. This was something very unique to them. And they call it worthless. And it's almost like, hey, we would rather go back into captivity. Can you bring us back? Because at least we had food. God was angry at this shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I find it very interesting that when Moses prays for the people, what 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 were they wanting? Take away the serpents from us? What did God do? He didn't take them away from them. But he did provide a means of salvation. It's interesting. We could spend a whole week studying this passage. But let's look at what Jesus is saying when he's referencing this. You may recall last week how we discussed the three saving elements of true saving faith. I gave you some Latin terms. Notitia, ascensus, fiducia. You got to have the information first. That's notitia. You can't believe in what you've never heard of. A census, you have to believe that information to be true. And in fiducia, you have to trust that to be true. All All three elements are necessary. Last week, I used a simple illustration of a chair. This week, let's use Jesus's illustration, this bronze serpent. Imagine you're there with Moses, and you're bitten by a serpent. How do you survive? Well, first, you have to have the information that God has provided a means for survival. You have to know that this bronze serpent exists somewhere on a pole. But that's not good enough if you're bitten by a serpent, right? You can't just know that this thing exists. You also have to accept it to be true. I mean, you can see that somebody next to you may have been bitten by a serpent and they look back at the bronze serpent and they're still living, so it it works. I believe it to be true. But when you're bit by a serpent, what good does that do you unless you turn and look at the serpent for yourself, trusting that that bronze serpent that that God has provided will save you? You see the three elements of true saving faith there? And the reason I love this is because you can see that in reference to the cross. Because that's where Jesus is going with this. He's saying, just as Moses lifted up the serpent and one would have to look to the serpent for salvation, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on a cross. And it's not good enough to have the information. And it's not good enough to believe that it actually happened. But you must trust that when he went to the cross, when Jesus, the Son of God, went to the cross, he did it for me. He did it for my salvation, to justify me. Remember, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus who believes in him. He believes he's a good teacher, but he does not express this third element of faith of trusting in him for salvation. He is still depending upon his own works. Have I done enough, God, to get into your kingdom? So he's pointing him to the cross. He's saying that in order for one to be saved, they must not only have that information and believe it to be true, but they must trust it for themselves. And then we get to quite possibly the most popular verse in all of Scripture. Martin Luther said this verse, John 3.16, was the Bible in miniature. He said if you took this one verse, you could summarize all of Scripture because it's all pointing to the cross and that you must believe in what Jesus is doing. What's interesting is this week in our community group, I pointed out the fact that everybody knows this verse. If you've grown up in church, you've probably memorized this. And so I asked them, to, to, to say it out loud as a group. And what do you think it sounded like? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And I was really quick to point out to them, you would think you might say that with more excitement, right? I mean, this is John three sixteen. Whoever believes in him would have eternal life. For God so loved the world, but we've become so numb to it. For God so loved the world. I hope that seeing this verse in its full context this morning gives you a fresh look at John 3.16. I hope you love this verse, and I I hope you have memorized it. But I hope that you see it for what it is. And you you recognize what's being communicated in this. So in order to do that, I'm gonna read it along with verses 17 through 18. I once had a a pastor tell me, I was asking him some questions actually very similar to what we've been talking about, going through John 3. I was like, man, I see here that that the Holy Spirit has to work, and I, I just I'm struggling with that. How does that work? with man responding to God's call? How how, how does all that go together? And I remember he said to me, I see where you're going with this, and I'm just going to tell you, I preach John 3.16. That's good, but what about 17 and 18? What about going back to 14? Like, I'm okay with preaching John 3.16, as long as you understand what it's saying. And you understand it in its context. Because John 3.16 is powerful. It has led many thousands likely to salvation. Because in the truths communicated in John 3.16, we get to see the love of God magnified, expressed. And I hope that we all enjoy it and that we take great delight in John 3.16. But let's understand it for what it is. John 3.16 is not an invitation. Now hear me. I'm not saying that me reading John 3.16 and communicating those truths to you would be an invitation. Because I'm inviting you to trust in this truth that God loves you and he sent his son for you. That is an invitation. But John 3.16 is just stating a fact. For God so loved the world. When he starts off with that word for, he is explaining what he has just communicated in verses 14 through 15. It is an explanation. I'm going to give you more information here. You've got to imagine, we've heard John 3.16 a lot. If you've grown up in the church, it's very familiar to you. But this was the first time it was ever stated. The disciples, put yourself in their shoes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son Put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes. The first time he's ever heard this groundbreaking truth that God loves me, and he loves me so much that he gave up his only son for me. He's explaining what he talked about when he said that the Son of Man must be lifted up, and that whoever believes in him would be saved. When Jesus says that God loved the world, he is not talking about a quantity of people. This is not a number here. Friday evening, I had some time where I was preparing, and uh, John Piper referenced a book in in one of his sermons. It's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God by D.A. Carson. Uh, I've read this a number of years ago, so I just picked it back up and I read through the first couple of chapters. Uh, very short. I would encourage you to read it. Because if you struggle with how God's love, how it works with his sovereign work in salvation, how is that loving? How can I, how can I take both of those truths and put them together and it work? This is a very good resource, and it doesn't take long to read. It's like 90 pages. But D.A. Carson in this book he has a quote that I had underlined years ago. It says God's love, in, God's love in sending the Lord Jesus is to be admired not because it is extended to so big a thing as the world, but to so bad a thing. Not to so many people as to such wicked people. This is not about quantity, but this is talking about a specific quality of man, the world. And you'll see that in John's writings. When he he brings up the world, he is talking about evil, our sinful nature. When the light came into the world, he is coming, stepping down out of glory into darkness, into evil. I don't have to tell you that God loves the world, that God has a plan for the nations. We talk about that very often here. That's not what John 3.16 was saying. He's talking about the evil brokenness that we were in. God loved us in that. Romans 5.8 says something similar, that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That we didn't have to respond to him with love first, but that while we were still in rebellion, still rejecting him, his son died for us. So we could read John 3.16 when it says, For God so loved the world, and say, For God so loved evil, rebellious man that has rejected him over and over and has disobeyed him and hated him. For God so loved that man that he gave his only son for him. So when I say that God loves you, that's the kind of love I'm talking about. I don't have any children. But for those of you who do, you can put yourself in this position. If you were to go to your child and say, I've got these enemies. They hate me. I have extended love and grace to them. And yet they complain about me and they rebel against me. I've given them everything that they need. And instead they worship something else. can you go die for them? I need you to go die for them so that I can have a relationship with them. That's how much God loves us. That's how much God loves you. You didn't have to come to him first. He said, I love you so much, I'm going to give up my son for you. And Jesus John wants us to believe in the Christ, right? The Son of God. And so Jesus Himself obeys His Father in submission to His Holy Father and says, I'm dying for you because I love you. That's the kind of love that God has for us. The kind of love that would compel Him to send His only Son to die on our behalf so that through him he might gain many children. So whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And with our understanding of true saving belief, right? That the Holy Spirit has to work first. How regeneration precedes that belief. Our understanding of God's love for us should grow even deeper. Because it says... For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes. But how is man going to believe? That's why you need to read it in context. Verses 3, 1 through 8 explains that man cannot believe on his own. That we are dead in our trespasses. That we do not seek after God. So the love of God is communicated even in the fact that in order for us to believe, he expressed his love there too. Jesus goes on to tell Nicodemus that God didn't send him in the world to condemn it, but to die so that through him the world might be saved is referring to this state of people that evil man might be saved. We see in verse 18 that Jesus didn't need to condemn anyone. He didn't have to do that. Because anyone that does not believe already stands condemned. That is our natural state. We are condemned when we come into this world because of the fall of Adam. It is only by the gracious, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit and the immeasurable love of God expressed in the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, that we are mercifully saved. And for those who are condemned and who who will be condemned on the last day is because they hated God. And they rejected his love. Jesus says that in his next statement. He points to that as the judgment. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, as we learn in in chapter 1, has come into the world. And instead of receiving Him and believing in Him as the only Son of God, they clung to the darkness. And we talked about this when we were going through that. We don't just like darkness. Jesus says we love darkness. We love the fact that in darkness we can hide our sin. That we can do things and not be seen. Jesus says we love the darkness rather than Him the light because He exposes all of our works. And they are evil. He says if our works were pure, we would have no trouble in coming to Him. Because we would want those works to be seen. Let it be seen for what it is. They're pure. But instead, we love the darkness and we hate the light. We love our sin and we hate the one who went to the cross to die for that sin. And this is how the conversation is. You know, this isn't a storybook ending. We don't see a miraculous conversion here with Nicodemus. We don't get to read about the regeneration taking place that, that grants him new spiritual life and that he would respond in belief. But can I tell you that God loved Nicodemus so much? God loved Nicodemus. Later on in John's Gospel, we will see that Nicodemus stands up for Jesus in the midst of the Pharisees, that very group that he belongs to when we're in chapter 3. Then we'll see Nicodemus come up again. He's one of two men that prepares Jesus' body for burial, something that he would have never done with his stature and his position in the Jewish religion. But something happened here. And I can't explain it. All I can tell you is the Spirit moved just like the wind. I can't tell you where the Spirit came from and I couldn't tell you where He was going next. But something happened in the heart of Nicodemus. Possibly after this conversation. Maybe he went home after this conversation thinking about all that Jesus had just told him. Remember, he went at night. It's possible that as devastating as this was to him, he could have searched the scriptures all night, searching for this truth. How have I missed this? And somehow, by the work of the Holy Spirit, Nicodemus saw it, and he believed. And he did not just believe in the signs, but now he believed in the glory of Jesus Christ. God loved Nicodemus so much. And so if there's anyone here that has not believed in that Christ for salvation, if you have not trusted that when He died on the cross, He did it for you because His Father loved you that much, I pray that you would wrestle with that and that God would grant you the ability to understand it. And if you were to believe that truth, just know that you're going to find yourself in the family of God, reunited with Him for all eternity. And if you have believed, I hope that you realize how much God loves you. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Sometimes as believers, we we forget the fact that God loves us. Not that we have earned his love or that we deserve his love, but that despite our unworthiness, he has overcome our evil state so that we can spend eternity with him. Remember his love whenever you're tempted to believe that God's love is conditioned on your pleasing him, your good works. Look, he takes great delight in your good works, and he wants those things to happen. But his love is not conditioned upon that because even before you did anything good, he expressed his love for you. Or when things don't seem to be going well and you wonder, God, where are you? Do you love me? Remember the fact that he's already put it on display for you. The problem isn't with him. It's with us. He has pursued us. He has given us the ability to believe in Him. He has given us the ability ability to believe in the death and burial and resurrection of His Son who died on our behalf so that we might be justified. And He's given us eternal hope that one day we will reign. We will be co-heirs with Christ, reigning alongside Him. It's because He loves us. So if you're believing as a child of the light, let's stop playing around in the darkness of our own hearts. Let's let's stop doing that. Instead, let's let go of the darkness and step into the light, recognizing that it's going to hurt. It's not going to be all fun. But let's fully embrace it so that our evil Hearts, our evil works might be purified, that we may be sanctified, and that we may clearly represent Christ. I'll close with this. It's one of my favorite psalms. And while I was preparing, I just kept thinking, uh, sometimes like the song just goes on in my head over and over. And we've sung it here before, so it's going to be familiar to you, but I want you to listen to the lyrics. I'm not going to sing. Natalie told me I can't. (laughs) How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the Chosen One bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon His shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice. Fall out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart his wounds have paid my ransom.